Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. I believe it was big swinging dicks. So there was obviously an overexcited imagination on the part of some, I would suggest. Because if he wants to know what misogyny looks like in modern Australia, he doesn't need a motion in the House of Representatives. He needs a mirror. I love the mansplaining. I'm enjoying it. What's mansplaining, Senator? Welcome to In the House and In the Senate. I'm Alicia Aiken-Radburn and we're talking to women in Australian politics about who they are, what they do and why it matters. Linda Burney was elected as the federal member for Barton in 2016 following a 13-year career in the New South Wales Parliament as member for Canterbury. During her state political career, she served as a minister in a number of senior portfolios, including as the Minister for Community Services and later as the Deputy Leader of the Opposition. Linda is a proud Wiradjuri woman. She was the first Aboriginal person to be elected to the New South Wales Parliament and the first Aboriginal woman to serve in the Australian House of Representatives. Linda began her career as a teacher in Western Sydney and then as an education bureaucrat. She has held senior positions in the non-government sector, serving on a number of boards including the SBS, the New South Wales Anti-Discrimination Board and the New South Wales Board of Studies. Thanks for joining me this morning, Linda. What's on your agenda today, Linda? Tell me about the day day in the life of a politician. Well, my well, it's actually the last twenty four hours I've been to Perth and back. Oh my gosh! I know, <laughs> so I'm a little bit um, tired. But what was fantastic is that we made a major announcement yesterday in Perth of ninety million dollars. Uh, from the Federal Labor Party that will address the issues of deaths in custody. Um, it was a frantic 24 hours in Perth, but really, uh, really, really worthwhile. Tell me about um, the announcement. So it's been 30 years since the Royal Commission. 30 years since the Royal Commission. Uh, there's been a doubling of the number of Aboriginal people in jail since the Royal Commission. It's now at about... nationally in some jurisdictions it's you know north of 70 or 80 percent um the fastest growing group cohort of anyone in jail in australia are first nations women and there's also been 474 deaths since the royal commission 
And a lot of people, probably yourself, uh, weren't even born when the Royal Commission happened 30, 30 years ago. So what we announced yesterday was $91 million. And um, it is going to be the expansion of the Justice Free Investment Program to 30 communities, which is so important because that uh, that really goes to uh, addressing what the, the root causes are of high incarceration rates. And it's community-driven, uh, $30 million to help families participate more fully in the coronial inquest process, which is just crucial on a whole range of levels, plus the establishment of real-time reporting of all deaths in custody, uh, which doesn't happen at the moment from the federal level. So that's what I announced yesterday in Perth. Uh, I got back in uh, very late last night. Um, I've worked this morning. I've had a meeting this morning with ACAN about remote communities and connectivity, uh, which was really fabulous. I'm speaking to you. Um, then I've got a meeting with uh, the chairperson of a group that, provides um, services for children that are caught up in the child protection system called Home Stretch. Uh, that's the next thing I've got to do. Then I've got a constituent coming in to talk to me. And then at 3 o'clock this afternoon, I'm going to the Aboriginal Legal Service for their 50th anniversary. And um, I'll be speaking at that and talking about what Labor announced yesterday in terms of uh, justice and deaths in custody. Then I'm going to go home. <laughs> and hopefully a wine at the end of the day <laughs> or something. Well, I've been, <laughs> believe it or not, this is how tedious my life is. I've been binging on it. ABC program, so I'll do a bit of that tonight. Oh, good. I'm glad you've got something to look forward to. I yes. just want to take you – it's sort of related to the announcement. I think a lot of young people look at the state of the world and, you know, look at things like the fact that we are – it is 30 years since the Royal Commission and we can see continued deaths in custody on the weekly. And I, I guess – I want to drill down. What was it for you that initially got you, you're obviously a very passionate person, but got you involved in politics as a mechanism to make change? So what was that like? And what was your journey to joining the party? Uh, I joined the Labor Party, I think it was about 1986, so a very long time ago. And for me, there was never a question about what party would you join. Of course, it was going to be the Labor Party. And I'd been interested in politics and been involved through um, my work, uh, particularly with the social justice issues uh, for First Nations people. But I'd always had this inherent, um, even as a young child, the uh, a real sense of what's fair and what's not fair and what's right and what's not right. Uh, even as a, a little person, I, I remember that very keenly. Um, and I also 
before becoming a member of parliament, which is way back now in 2003 in New South Wales and then into the federal sphere in 2016. Um, I had worked in the non-government sector uh, about changing the system from the outside. I'd worked as a, as a school teacher um, and I'd had wonderful experiences uh, being involved in a number of things like putting together the first social justice package. I was in Redfern Park when Paul Keating made that famous oh. speech. Um, I remember the Royal Commission really well. I was very involved in organising the bridge, uh, the, walk, the Walk for Freedom or the March for Freedom, Justice and Hope in the bicentennial year. I'd been very involved at a very senior level in the reconciliation process. I'd been on the board of SBS. I'd been in the New South Wales Anti-Discrimination Board. So I had lots of experiences and interface with the political system. I had the opportunity in 2003 to, I'd been a member of the party for ages and done all the things to go to local branch meetings, handing out and so forth. But, you know, I had the, the chance to actually run as a candidate in 2003. And the three things that motivated me back then are the same things that motivate me today. Uh, in no particular order, as a woman, as an Aboriginal person, and my whole life had been about the pursuit of social justice and truth-telling. And they're pretty good motivating factors to get involved in where the big decisions are made. So I decided that I'd done enough work from changing the system from the outside and I was going to be right at the heart of changing the system from the inside. What was the process of becoming a candidate? So you'd been involved in the party and you mentioned everything that comes with that, local branches, the joy that <laughs> is our local branch at times. What was the process? I think that's what a lot of women particularly yeah. fail to identify. How do you move from, you know, you've take, you've put yourself out there and you're going to branch meetings, you're getting involved in the party in whatever, you know, whatever means that is. What's that step to becoming a candidate? Well, the this, this step is that someone, in my case, I can't speak for everyone, anyone else. I can just talk about my experiences. Um, I joined the same branch as one Anthony Albanese um, and uh, the Warren branch in, in Marrickville. And uh, I was really... Um, I hadn't anticipated a life as a you know, member of parliament and I think you make a really good point is that there is so much mystery around this stuff that it's actually not that mysterious and I think we would do well to debunk some of that mystery which is what this discussion is really about and the 2003 the state election in New South Wales was coming up 
Um, and I was contacted to see whether or not I was interested in standing for the seat of Canterbury. Now, that was very interesting because it was held by the Labor Party, a really safe seat. And I think that, you know, when I think about it, the fact that I was I um, was offered to be a candidate in a safe seat. Now, when I say a safe seat, I'm talking about... It is safe. <laughs> a very, very safe Labor seat. It was, I think at that stage it was about, I don't know, 23 or 25%. So whoever was going to stand for Labor was, was going to win. It's Lanco for the Liberals, basically. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. So uh, what happened is that it was a bit unusual for me because I... Um, I was as naive as anyone about candidature and so forth. And the seat of Canterbury was held by Labor but by a member of a different faction to me. Mm, Here we go. So it meant me standing in pre-selection against the sitting member and someone else that thought he was the heir apparent. Mm. And... um, I guess that upset the apple carts a bit, but it all worked out fine in the end. So I said I would not do it unless there was a proper pre-selection and that was agreed to. There was a pre-selection of uh, the the branches. On the day of the pre-selection, I was the only person that was a candidate. The other two candidates had pulled out in the previous 24 hours, realising that they were not going to um, muster the numbers to win. So I became the candidate and worked really hard in a proper, a proper, um, you know, process of uh, running for the seat and I was the successful candidate in 2003 I stayed in the New South Wales Parliament for from 2003 to 2015, um, became a very senior cabinet minister, uh, served under four premiers and two opposition leaders, ended up as the deputy leader of the Labor Party in New South Wales uh, after the 2011 horror show oh, <laughs> where, where we lost. Uh, so much ground. I'm glad I was still in year 12. Yeah, then. yeah. So much. <laughs> it was bad. Um, but, you know, it was an amazing experience. And uh, one of the things that I was very insistent on is that I was not going to be judged or viewed through the prism of my Aboriginality alone, that people, uh, and which is why I, did what I did. You um, didn't initially would, take the Aboriginal Affairs no, portfolio. Because never you in wanted, government. Yeah. Only only in opposition did I take it on, but never in government because I wanted to make the point that as an Aboriginal person, yes, that's who I am, it's fundamental to me, but that doesn't mean that I don't know about child protection or the environment or fair trading or disability services or or, um, you know, uh, yes, I do shop at a supermarket. <laughs> All the same things as, 
as other people do. Linda, so, you mentioned um, you mentioned yeah. those passions and social justice being a key one for you and truth-telling. How have you found that those passions that initially drew you to politics, and I just have to indulge you with one little story. I remember I was on driving on the Hume Highway down to Canberra about to start my my permanent staffing position with Bill Shorten. I was so excited. It was probably the end of 2016 and I put on your episode of Conversations with Richard Feidler (laughs) and you tell this story about how when you were an education bureaucrat, you were having these weekly meetings with the minister and you were sort of sitting there being like, yeah, I could do this. I could do this. (laughs) And I love that. Yeah, you could. And I think that so many women don't back themselves to, I think a lot of women think it, but they don't necessarily take that extra step of going and doing it. That that is a very true story. I thought I could do that. Your job. I know much more than you do. Um, But I think the message really is um, is that particularly for for us as women, and I, I do lots of mentoring. I do lots of talking to young women. And I say, you know, take a chance. Uh, grab every opportunity. Uh, if you fail, you learn something. Use it as a learning experience, not a failure. But you've got to be uh, confident and that's easier said than done. But don't apologise. I mean, I just, I just go crazy when you go to meetings and women say, oh, "Look, I should be more prepared. I'm sorry." No, stop it. Uh, it's just, so it's the same as looking at yourself as a woman to take up a job or something. Because men, men don't, mm-hmm. don't they think, "Oh, well, I'll just put an application in." Yeah, it's the classic just- of like. A woman will fulfill three of the criteria of the ten and won't apply. Yeah. And a man oh sorry, a man will fulfill three of the yes. ten, he'll apply. A woman will fulfill nine and she'll feel that she isn't she she doesn't have the skills required. Okay, my message is stop it. Yeah. Just good. stop it. I just love go, that. Just you know, have a crack, have a go. Taking uh, you to your passions, social justice, truth telling. How do you feel like your passions have translated into parliamentary life? Do you feel like you've been able to make change, and what are you particularly proud of achieving so far? I am very um, proud of uh, my party. I am very committed to what Labor stands for um, because they are my values as well. Uh, I feel and have always felt really respected within the party. I've felt that people have listened to what I've had to say Um, and I've never felt that there hasn't been that that respect and that that grows and I'm also a very experienced politician I I know how things rock and roll and um, uh, you have to be incredibly realistic about that but I've never found 
in any dreadful way a serious conflict uh, because I'm realistic, I'm pragmatic, uh, and that's a nice way to, to meld into being idealistic as well. But you know something that uh, I'll give you an example uh, that I think answers your question is that Labor, uh, both under Bill and now under Anthony, uh, was absolutely committed to the Uluru Statement. Now, that's never wavered. Uh, we've been as clear as a bell about that for uh, since Uluru. And that involves precisely what you're talking about, a national process of truth-telling. And if that's the position of my party, then, you know, that just empowers people like myself and all of us really to go out and pursue that. The issues of social justice um, are who I am. I mean, <laughs> it's, it's really funny. Uh, I know that when I was awarded, uh, afforded the opportunity to be Minister for Community Services in New South Wales, I'm now the Shadow Minister for Families and Social Services, people say, great promotion, sorry about the portfolio. Well, I love the portfolios because they are portfolios that deal with the most vulnerable, uh, the most disadvantaged. And if you can be a champion for those people, well, you can change the world. I think that your portfolios are just as integral to... Australia as the treasurer or infrastructure. In fact, I think it's way more important. When you, I, when, you, <laughs> when you think about it, the social services portfolio um, in government is the biggest spending portfolio. You start to realise it's got... Oh, you're in charge of a lot of moolah. social but a very important economic uh, imperative as well. How have you felt watching the, you know, we've seen an influx of media at the moment about the culture in Parliament for women. How have you mm. felt as a parliamentarian watching that? Because I know that it has been pretty difficult as a staffer to hear yeah. these stories. And I was just wondering what your overarching feeling is watching that and how you feel that as a parliamentarian we need to deal with those issues? Uh, a couple of things. It has been a very serious time in the parliament and you know, for the general public, they don't make a distinction between Labor and Liberal. They they just see what's going on, pardon me, and they're horrified. I have particularly been conscious um, that the voices of young women or women who are staffers need to be heard very much in this. I mean, for me, for example, I'm, 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 you know, I'm now in my 60s. Um, I don't have the same vulnerabilities that a female 
woman, young woman staff member has. I'm in a very different position and I've been really conscious, really, really conscious of that. Um, I think without putting a political lens on this, I think that the Prime Minister has handled this very poorly. And for me, there's two issues. There has to be structural change. Um, I don't know exactly what that is, but the structural change I'm talking about is that there has to be a clear process for people to find resolution in a complaint. But the cultural change is just as important, and I think that we have still got some way to go in terms of that cultural change, uh, which we can clearly see see with uh, even recent events for um, uh, for people like Andrew Lamming. So the cultural change has to be everyone's responsibility. It hasn't. It's, if it's just the responsibility of women like us to bring it about, then it won't happen. It has to be the, the responsibility for everyone. Um, and the structural change is really hard when you think that members of parliament are individual employers. So I'm the individual employer mm. for six or seven people. Um, I, I'm not sure how you address that, but what's crucially important is that I take and every member of parliament, and I, I see this happening, takes responsibility for making sure that they are very informed, that their staff is supported and, um, uh, and their staff, who, if they do have issues, they feel, feel empowered. They can, to... They're empowered to be able to come forward with those issues, knowing something is going to be done about it. Well, Linda, you have had just the most stellar career. You are an inspiration to women, young women across the aisle. Um, and I just one last thing: where can we find you if we want to connect with you in the future? Where <laughs> what what is the best avenue? My email. <laughs> <laughs> Guys, Google Linda Burney. It's right there. Thank you so much, Linda, for joining me. I could really talk to you all day, but we're both busy women. <laughs> I have a meeting. <laughs> Thank you, Linda. Thank you. In the House and in the Senate is recorded on the land of the Wadjuk people. This land was never ceded. It always was and always will be Aboriginal land. If you enjoyed this episode of In the House and in the Senate, please jump into your podcast app, subscribe and give me a quick rating and review. This will help the podcast reach more people and I will personally be incredibly grateful. Also, be sure to head over to the podcast Instagram at In the House in the Senate, where I'll be sharing content from our guests, throwbacks to my time in staffing and resources to help you get more involved in the political system. You can also follow my personal account at alicia.akenradburn. Thanks for listening and speak to you next week. Bye-bye. Goodbye to you. Bye. <laughs> 
question. <laughs> See ya. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.